This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. Thanks, Craig. I'm Charlie Fat. This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit. Thanks so much for joining me here on Slice Radio and via podcast. This is a very special episode. I'm going to call it Sounds Like Brain Bubblegum because I'm joined today by a special guest, the brainchild behind the Brain Bubblegum podcast. Please welcome Craig Bly. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for having me on. Now, I understand that Brain Bubblegum has recently joined the amazing array of programming here at Slice Radio. Tell us about your show. Yes, friend of the family, yes. Um, So the Brain Bubblegum podcast started out about maybe six years ago now. Um, When I I started sharing all these useless facts that I'd come across, you know, because I'd read some weird stuff. Um, and I wanted to just share them with the world because it, you know, tickled my brain and I thought it was, you know, amazing that I'd never heard of this before. And so I started sharing them on Facebook until I realized that, uh, I was probably annoying a lot of people. And then I decided to start my own Facebook group, um, brain Bubblegum. And, uh, about a couple of years ago, we decided to turn it into a podcast. And so I've grabbed my, uh, co-conspirators, Scott and Simone, and they now record with me. And um, I mean, I have to say that the pandemic has been really hard because we, it's, I know we're recording this uh, remotely today, but um, it's its really hard to be a remote podcast. So um, yeah, as soon as this lockdown's over, we're, we're back into it. And I absolutely cannot wait for your next new episode to drop. I must say, I really enjoyed the most recent episode about Mick. McDonald's. I did a, a commercial or two as a child actor many years ago for McDonald's, and ever since I feel like I've just been giving the money back one happy meal at a time. So uh, the title of this show sounds like Brain Bubblegum. Does that work for you? Perfect. I couldn't think of a better title. Before we get going with some amazing trivia on 90s music, we probably should talk about how we met, because we go right back to the 90s. We both worked at Australia's Wonderland. Yeah, that's right. We were cleaning up rubbish somewhere um, on one of the pathways. I think it was bubblegum. We were cleaning up bubblegum. Oh my God, it's all coming together. Uh, Excuse me, Mr. Fact Man. I think you'll find that it was Skittles. No, no, it was bubblegum. Let's not ruin the story. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Now, our love of 90s music doesn't just come from listening to 90s music. Way back in the 90s, we actually had an attempt at making music, making our debut at Australia's Wonderland. We did, yeah, we formed a band called The Chips Are Ready. You can't find us on Spotify, for very good reasons. (laughs) Well, that's true, but to be fair, Spotify probably aren't accepting submissions via cassette. So let's talk about our love for 90s alternative music. Was it around this time that you developed a taste for alternative tunes as opposed to the pop that they were playing on uh, video hits? Yeah, 100%. Um, I'd sort of grown up being a bit of a Triple M kind of rock kid. And then maybe about year 10, some of my mates introduced me to Triple J and I started getting into, you know, early 90s kind of music and style and, you know, love the grunge and all the the cool music coming through. So, yeah, by the time I sort of met you, I was well into my alternative 90s music. So the first band we're going to discuss is a little-known grunge band from Seattle known as Nirvana. Craig, can you remember the first time you heard Kurt Cobain and company? Yeah, I think so. I don't remember. It wasn't a momentous occasion that I would have heard it, but, um, yeah, undoubtedly it would have been Triple J for sure. I also don't remember specifically hearing them for the first time, but they almost came from nowhere and were suddenly everywhere. On television, on the radio, uh, people were wearing their T-shirts. You could not go anywhere without hearing Nirvana. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of the downfall of Nirvana, to be honest. Um, Kurt Cobain never liked the success and the fame of the song, and he, he really hated having to play it towards the end there because he was playing it every night and he's like, you know, this is just a silly little song that I did. I wrote it in five minutes. Um, you know, it was meant to be like a silly pop song and that's not what Nirvana were about. But, yeah, and the fame that came from that, I think, led to the downfall of Nirvana and, and possibly even 
you know, Kurt Cobain's suicide. Well, it wouldn't be sounds like brain bubblegum if we didn't dig up some interesting facts about Nirvana. So, Craig, what can you tell us that might help us out at our next trivia night? Well, why don't we start with the name of your podcast? Your podcast is obviously taking its name from Smells Like Teen Spirit. Do you know what Teen Spirit is? I actually know that one. I understand that Teen Spirit is a kind of spray-on deodorant for American teenage girls. It is, yes. It is a girl's deodorant. And so there is a story behind this. Um, So it was inspired about six months before the song came out. So Kurt Cobain at the time was dating this drummer called Toby Vale. And she was a drummer from Olympia, Washington, uh, from a band called Bikini Kill. And so... Kurt Cobain was friends with other members of Bikini Kill, including the lead singer Kathleen Hanna. And so they were drinking together one night, and because they both have quite feminist and left-wing thoughts, um, they decided to target this, what they called a fake abortion clinic. So essentially it was this um, place where teenage girls could go for sex education, but it was more about, you know, if you go there, you get you know, a bit of Bible bashed and, you know... Um, if you have an abortion, you go to hell kind of thing. And so what they did, they spray-painted fake abortion clinic and God is gay on the side of the building. And uh, still very much under the influence, they went back to Kurt Cobain's apartment where um, Hannah uh, used a Sharpie to write on Kurt Cobain's wall and and she wrote, Kurt smells like teen spirit, um, which was a deodorant that was made by his, uh, worn by his girlfriend, Toby Vale, at the time. And Hannah was making fun of Kurt Cobain so he was basically, she was basically saying that, you know, he's clingy and needy and he's so close to his girlfriend that he smells like her deodorant. But Kurt Cobain thought it was just this really profound thing and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm being, you know, alternative and rebellious and I smell like teen spirit sort of thing. And he didn't even know that it was what teen spirit was until a couple of months after the song came out. And then when he found out, he was, he was a bit pissed actually because he thought all this time that I was being made fun of. Um, but, uh, yeah, a bit of fun fact. Kurt Cobain has said he has never worn any cologne or underarm deodorant. Well, in that case, I imagine uh, Kurt smelt like anything other than teen spirit. Apparently. Yeah, he'd be quite fragrant. Smells like the men's change room. <laughs> smells like B.O. <laughs> well, there's absolutely no doubt that Smells Like Teen Spirit's a great song. But it's not just about that. It also came with... A remarkable music video that is still very much iconic today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this this video. Um, so they deliberately hired a really bad video director named Sam Bayer. I don't know if he was bad or if Kurt Cobain thought he was bad. So they wanted it to be a bit edgy and rough and not corporate. Um, but as it turns out, it did actually become quite corporate, and Kurt Cobain really did hate it. Um, he hated the process, he hated being there, he hated the first cut. And what he did was just decided to edit it himself. He said, this is crappy, I'm going to fix this. Um, and he, he said, I threw in a few extra things which pretty much saved it. But um, the thing that did save it, he reckons, was um, something that was a bit unplanned. So in the video, the last 30 seconds of the video, they're trashing the set, they're trashing the the instruments and, and all that kind of stuff. But that was not planned. Um it was just the end of a really long day of shooting. Um, these, you know, the extras were all annoyed and hot and, you know, drunk as well. And um, they just got sick of it and they just started trashing stuff. And luckily they were filming. Um, so Kurt Cobain threw that in. He was the one who actually edited that part in and he reckons that that's what saved the, the film clip. But, um, yeah, it was just completely unplanned. And then um, one of the other things was... You know, this um, Sam Bayer, he cast a lot of really attractive young girls in it. And Kurt Cobain thought that was just not what Nirvana were about. They didn't want to have, like, polished girls. Um, and he said at one point, uh, wait a minute, these cheerleaders look like strippers. And it turns out that a lot of the people, the cheerleaders, were actually strippers that they um, they got from L.A. So, um, yeah, and then um, yeah, in the video as well, if you see there's a janitor. You remember the janitor who's dancing along or, you know, with his mop. Yeah, so that is actually an inside joke because Kurt Cobain went back to his very, his, the same school that he went to and became a janitor at that school. And so those who knew he was the janitor, that became a bit of an inside joke. 
um, for you know if you knew about his old job. So um, yeah, so that's why the janitor's in there. Now you weren't really anybody in the music biz in the eighties and the nineties unless Weird Al Yankovic takes off one of your songs, and Nirvana was no exception. And his video for Smells Like Nirvana is remarkably similar to the original music video, uh, albeit with the jokes. Well, there's a good reason for that, because it was shot by it was shot in the same studio using the same set and same um, gear, basically. So that's why it looks so similar. Um, but, um, but yeah, Kurt Cobain basically said that, yeah, if... Weird Al Yankovic's covering our song, it's a sign that we've made it as a band, <laughs> um, which is, of course, you know, pretty true. But um, when Weird Al Yankovic actually asked Nirvana for permission to parody it, uh, Kurt Cobain's first question was, is it going to be about food? You know, because <laughs> most of uh, Weird Al's stuff is about food. But he said, um, you know what would be really funny? Because uh, no one can un- actually understand the lyrics. So let's just say, I'm mum- you know, you're mumbling and um, no one can understand what you're saying. And so Kurt Cobain thought that was hilarious and said, yeah, go for it. That's really good.
This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. Okay, Craig, it's confession time. I, Charlie Fat, do not own a physical copy of Nevermind. And you call yourselves an alternative 90s music podcast. That's terrible. Um, I actually don't either, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, so, so my girlfriend at the time bought all the Nirvana stuff. She loved it. Um, so I just listened to it with her. So yeah, I never actually bought it myself. Well, in my defense, at the time in the early 90s, you, you didn't need to own a copy of Nevermind to hear Nirvana. You just had to turn the television on, turn the radio on, go to a party, and you would hear Nirvana. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was, it was just um, saturated at the time, wasn't it? Just everything Nirvana. Well, it's actually really amazing that we're talking about it now because two days ago, it was the 30th anniversary of it coming out. Well, thank you. That makes me feel very old. I know, me too. So yeah, 24th of September 1991 is when it came out. Uh, At the time, the original record contract with Sub Pop, which was their label, um, only paid them 600 bucks for it. Wow, that's not much. But the whole album, yeah. But um, went on to sell over 30 million copies. Yeah, well, it would be 30 million and two, if not for you and I. Of course, an album like that doesn't sell that many copies by accident, does it? The album cover art with the swimming baby certainly must have helped. Yeah, someone knew what they were doing when they did that. And it's been a bit controversial ever since. And I think even at the time, it was still very controversial. And um, the record label didn't like the idea. Um, They agreed to the album cover because they obviously liked it. And they knew that the controversy would help them sell records. But what they wanted to do was put a sticker over it and uh, over the, the offending appendage. Of course, back in the 90s when there was something offensive, you just put a sticker on it. That's right, yes. Yeah. So, um, But um, Nirvana basically said, look, we'll only let you put a sticker over it if you put on that sticker. Um, if you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. And the record label said, mm, no, we're not putting that on. And so, yeah, it, it just never, it never went on. Um but yeah, it was just um, just a little photo shoot. So there was a, a party, a pool party, and um, the photographer was a family friend. So it was a well-known photographer. He paid you know the parents two hundred bucks for the photo, and um, they they basically forgot forgot about the photo shoot until they saw the Nevermind album cover blown up massive on the wall of Tower Records in LA. And, of course, this young boy by the name of Spencer Eldon's penis was very prominent. And uh, some may say it's the most viewed penis in history. Yes, and I understand that Spencer hasn't been all that appreciative of his uh, contribution to pop culture. He has, so I think he's been a bit mixed about it. Um, He's sort of gone from saying, oh, you know, when he was a teenager, he's just like, oh, yeah, my penis has been seen by the most people in the world. Ha, ha, ha. And then when he was in his 20s, he became a model. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he, he thought it was good for his publicity. He's, when he was 23, he said, you know, I'm an artist and a model, and it's given me the opportunity to work with Shepard Fairey, who's, you know, the famous um, artist who did the Obey posters and things like that. Um, so he said that was really good, and he found out he was the Nirvana baby, and um, that's um, Shepard Fairey, that is. And um, and then a little bit later on, he you know towards nineteen uh, two thousand and nineteen, he basically said he was a bit conflicted about the picture, and he, he was saying to the photographer that you know I feel like everyone else made money off it, but I didn't make any money out of it, um, and it's always the record labels who make the money out of it. So he felt I think he sort of came around to be feeling a bit exploited, but I don't know maybe he's just out of cash. Who knows? Um, but uh, but yeah, and and like you say, just last month he decided to sue Nirvana. For $150,000, basically saying that his parents never signed the release. Um, He he thought the nude image constituted child pornography. Um, You know, the the inclusion of the dollar bill, which was actually superimposed after the photo was taken, makes him seem like a sex worker. I mean, I think that's a little bit fanciful myself. But um, but yeah, and then they also said that uh, Nirvana said they were going to cover it up with a sticker, which never happened as well. So um, yeah, I think that's... that. Lawsuit's still going on. I don't know the outcome of that yet. Well, we've been giving Nirvana the brain bubblegum treatment, but we actually haven't played any Nirvana yet. So, Craig, what track shall we play off the Nevermind album? Well, 
I think it's fitting that um, since 2005, there's been a sign welcoming you to Aberdeen, Washington, which is where um, Kurt Cobain's from. And it's a big sign that says, come as you are. So I like that. So I reckon we go with come as you are. Sounds Like Teen Spirit, with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. Now, Craig, it's almost impossible to discuss Nirvana without also bringing up the Foo Fighters, is it? Yeah, so um, definitely a spin-off band. So Dave Grohl from Nirvana, who is Nirvana's drummer, um, decided that um, as soon as Kurt Cobain had, had passed away, that it was okay to start releasing some of his songs under his own sort of band label, um, which he called the Foo Fighters. But before that, he was writing and recording songs, you know, throughout 1990, 1991, while he was on tour with Nirvana. But um, he was actually a little bit intimidated by Kurt Cobain, and he never shared the songs with him. He didn't want to sort of, you know, infringe on Kurt Cobain's writing process, and I think Kurt Cobain was maybe a little bit sensitive as well. So, um, and he, he was actually Nirvana's seventh drummer. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that old joke about drummers being expendable, I, th- I think that's quite true. There's an element of truth in that. So, yeah, he didn't want to just sort of ca- cause any trouble or stir the pot and um, get kicked out. So he did actually do some recording when he was with Nirvana, 
and he recorded under a pseudonym uh, a band called Late. And L-A-T-E exclamation mark. And the joke being that, you know, they could come out 10 minutes late onto stage and say, hi, guys, we're late. Anyway. <laughs> um, so they released an album called Pocket Watch, which I think it's only a demo. So it was never really released and you can't find it on Spotify or Apple or anything like that. So our band from the 90s, the Chips Already, are in good company not being on Spotify. But I do imagine that these early songs from Dave Grohl have not been made available because they weren't of a great recording quality. Yeah, I dare say, because I think it was recorded on an 8-track mixer in his bedroom, so probably not the best quality. Um, But yeah, so as soon as Kurt Cobain passed away, um, Dave Grohl dug out all his songs and uh, recorded the entire Foo Fighters' first album just completely by himself. He did all the vocals, he did all the instruments, so, you know, guitars, drums, bass everything and um so then when the record label picked it up they he basically had to create a band and so that's when the other members of the Foo Fighters came in um so so yeah but um but yeah like D- uh, Dave Grohl was actually a really talented guitarist uh so even though he was a drummer he was actually a really good guitarist and so there was this one time when Kurt Cobain um was listening to Dave Grohl playing the guitar backstage and he basically turned to someone else and said you know what we're not even the best guitarists in Nirvana um, Dave Grohl is, but uh, yeah, so there you go. So really good guitarist. Now, Craig, I never saw Nirvana live. I certainly was at that first big day out when they played, but I must have chosen to see a, a different band. But we've definitely seen the Foo Fighters together. Yeah, yeah, uh, a couple of years ago now, wasn't it? Maybe five, six years ago? It was actually more recent than that. It was 2018, supported by Weezer, at the ANZ Stadium in Sydney. And from memory, if there was the furthest row ever from the stage, that's where we were sitting. Yeah, I think I bought those tickets. I'm sorry. Yep. Teeny tiny ants playing music on a stage very, very far away. Hey, fun fact, Craig, did you know that Foo Fighters songs make up 100% of the Triple M playlist? Yeah, it's the Foo Fighters Network. Well, it's time to enjoy something from the Foo Fighters. I've picked Big Me. This is from 1995 and the Foo Fighters' self-titled debut album. I love the video for this song. Uh, It's a send-up of the Mentos ads and was filmed in Sydney. Yeah, let's go for it.
This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. I'm Charlie Fat. This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit. Thanks so much for joining me here on Slice Radio and via podcast. This is a very special episode. It sounds like brain bubblegum and I'm joined by host and brainchild of the Brain Bubblegum Trivia Podcast, Craig Bly. And we're moving on across the Atlantic to talk about Britpop. Craig, what was Britpop? Oh, I think a lot of people who you'd associate with Britpop would not like the term Britpop. They didn't consider themselves that. I think it's a bit of a, a media marketing term. But uh, but yeah, it's essentially all the alternative rock acts from the indie scene in um, in the UK. Sort of the the Royal Britannia kind of you know proud to be British again. Um, it was time of New Labour and Tony Blair, and so yeah, so it was it was all sort of you know lots and lots of um, you know British bands from the eighties and nineties. You know the Smiths, for example, the Manchester scene with the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, In Spiral Carpets. Um, you know those were sort of the roots of Britpop, and then in maybe nineteen ninety two. Uh, it was Damon Albarn from Blur who was on tour in America for the first time and he was feeling very lonely and he decided to write a lot of songs which would be considered, you know, quintessentially British. And so, yeah, basically 1992 is when Britpop was born. So um, with the Blur single Pop Scene, uh, they reckon, and um, the Suede, Suede was another band at the time and they had a, a great hit called The Drowners, which is one of their first big hits. And so, yeah, spring of 1992. It's probably uh, where our Britpop comes from. There certainly were a lot of amazing acts coming out of the UK at that time. I would think my favourite would be... No, my, definitely my favourite has to be Pulp. I think I have to agree with you, Charlie. I think Pulp is my favourite too. And I was living in the UK in the early 2000s and, um, you know, we had a couple of Pulp albums and we just drove around the UK, you know, a bit of a road trip and we just listened to Pulp and just uh, just fell in love with them. But, um, yeah, big fan of Blur, big fan of Oasis as well. Um, I liked Elastica and Suede and, yeah, all the big ones, I reckon. She came from Greece, she had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St Martin's College, that's where I
This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. Big Mac fries to go. I think it was uh, 2018 that you and I went to the Factory Theatre in Sydney to check out Pop Will Eat Itself. Would they be considered a Britpop band? Oh, I think they predate Britpop a bit, actually. Um, so they're, they're sort of from the late 80s, early 90s as well, but some um, very different style. Um, I think you'd call Popweed itself, I think they call themselves Grebo Rock, which is a, a very specific type from the Midlands um, of rock, very short-lived. So, Craig, let's move forward to 1995 and the beginning of what was known as the Britpop Wars. What were the Britpop Wars? Yeah, so the Britpop Wars is basically a media-confected thing, like a lot of things, like the name Britpop itself. Um, but yeah, it was basically a chart battle between Blur and Oasis, and um, it sort of was called or dubbed the Battle of Britpop, and um, it brought Britpop to the forefront of the British press. Uh, this is in 1995, and Blur and Oasis had sort of cap- happily sort of coexisted for a long time, but they there sort of was a bit of a media fueled rivalry between them, and then you know, culminating in 1995 they kind of hated each other and slagged each other off at every opportunity and the media just loved it they just they got in on the acts and um and then it sort of culminated in the nme um the new music express the big magazine over there um august 12 cover they called it the british heavyweight championship and they had the pending release of blur's single country house and then oasis roll with it on the same day so they came out on the same day um, and Noel Gallagher basically said both songs were shit, but um, didn't stop the press. And uh, yeah, so they pitted the two bands against each other. And um, turns out Blur won. Blur won that battle. So Country House sold 274,000 copies against Oasis's Roll With It, which which sold 216,000. Um, so they did chart at number one and number two, respectively. But um but yeah, it's sort of really intensified that rivalry between the two bands. You know, Oasis is from the north of England, you know, more working class background. Um, Blur was, you know, from the south of England, more middle class, kind of a bit more posh, um, private school kind of people. And so, um, yeah, it did actually take off and they did hate each other there for a while. So, Craig, let's step into the Wayback Machine. It's the 14th of August, 1995. You're standing outside the HMV in Leicester Square, 
What single will you be buying, Oasis or Blur? <laughs> well, I can answer that because I did actually buy Country House as a single. So, uh, yeah, it was a four-track EP, I believe. And this is from the days of the CD single when uh, bands would release multiple versions of essentially the same track uh, to, to, to sell extra copies. And I understand that Blur actually sold more copies because they simply had more versions out there for the fans to buy. So people bought multiple copies of the same song. So let's look a little bit closer at our two contenders in this heavyweight showdown. Craig, let's start with the brothers Gallagher. Well, I might just start with um, saying, well, my wife is always asking me to if I'll ever give up seeing Wonderwall. And I said, maybe. Uh, you probably should remove the comedy tag from your podcast. <laughs> yeah, very good advice, yep. Um, I do actually have a tie-in with Nirvana, believe it or not. No way. Yeah, so Noel Gallagher once stated that Nirvana's Kurt Cobain was the only songwriter he had respect for in the last 10 years, and he thought his music was very similar to Nirvana's, and that Kurt Cobain could have easily written Wonderwall. I mean, I think that's a bit big-headed myself, um, comparing yourself to Nirvana, but um, then again, Oasis were pretty big. They were absolutely massive. And I did actually get to see Oasis. It was the 9th of December 2002 at Cardiff International Arena. And the show almost didn't go ahead because in Germany a few nights before, Liam had his two front teeth knocked out in a bar brawl. Uh, Luckily, he had some emergency surgery. And just before performing Live Forever, Liam said, this one is for my new teeth. Great gig. Great band. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think we'll be getting any new material uh, as we haven't seen the brothers uh, together recently, have we? Well, not recently because they basically don't talk, Um, although they have started exchanging text messages, I believe. So they are actually on speaking terms, kind of. But yeah, ever since they broke up in 2009, they just have not spoken to each other. And in fact, um, I've got a a quote here from um, Liam. He said... I'd rather eat my own shit than be in a band with Noel again. And speaking of eating shit, Craig, uh, did you know I've recently been exchanging text messages with Craig Kelly? Oh, no, I think it's very one way. It's definitely not one way. He texts me about COVID vaccination and I reply, fuck off. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I, I uh, I might reply, see what he says. I highly recommend it. You know, I'm, I'm always interested in where bands get their names from. So what's the Oasis story, Craig? So Oasis got their name from um, a poster hanging in the, the Gallagher's bedroom. So Noel Gallagher was a, um, he was a, he was a roadie for a British group in Spiral Carpets. And so he had that poster on his wall. And one of the places they were um, playing in Spiral Carpets was the Oasis Ledger Centre. And so they took their band name from that poster. But um, do you know where... Wonderwall gets its name from because you're a bit of a film buff true I do like my movies but there is a reason why I'm doing a music podcast and not a film trivia podcast besides all my film knowledge is 100% about the movie showgirls okay so Wonderwall is a movie from 1968 and it's about this lonely professor and his obsession with his female neighbor uh, this fashion model and he spies on her life through a hole in the wall through this Wonderwall and George Harrison from the Beatles wrote all the music. And so, obviously, uh, Manchester and Liverpool very close together. And, um, yeah, that's what inspired Wonderwall. And their success certainly didn't end with Wonderwall. In fact, the hits just kept coming. Yeah, well, um, Be Here Now, fastest-selling album in British history. Uh, so the third, third album they sold, um, 350,000 copies on one day on August 21st, 1997. And by the end of the week, it sold double that number, and it's England's fastest-selling album of all time. So, yeah, huge. So, yeah, the, um, the Britpop Wars were eventually won by Oasis. They became more commercially successful than, than Blur, and they, they sold more albums in the end. Of course, it is pretty hard to create fantastic music and punch your brother in the head at the same time. So by the time Oasis disintegrated in 2009, certainly the album quality was no longer there. Yeah, yep, for sure. But um, they in 1995, they were so popular in the UK 
that they released this single. And this single was just audio of Nolan Liam Gallagher arguing um, during this interview. And they called it Wibbling Rivalry. And it reached number 52 on the charts. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of that track to play for you. But instead, in the blue corner, going head to head with Blur's Country House on the 14th of August, 1995, I give you Oasis and roll with it. Sounds Like Teen Spirit, with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. Yes, indeed, I'm Charlie Fat. This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit, but today we are Sounds Like Brain Bubblegum, and I'm joined by the brainchild and host of Brain Bubblegum, the trivia podcast, Craig Bly. Let's talk about Blur, Craig, a band we've both seen uh, in concert reasonably recently we have yeah so that was um for their magic whip tour i believe so what 
2015? I looked it up. It was the 25th of July, 2015 at the Sydney Entertainment Centre. In fact, I think that was the very last gig I went to at the Sydney Entertainment Centre before they knocked it down. And Blurber in blistering form. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I actually really thought it was a good gig. I, th- I thought they sounded fantastic, actually. And it's a lot better than when I saw them in at their peak, you know, 1995, I think it was, at the Metro in Sydney. And they were rubbish. They were awful. Um, I think they were just tired and had enough. And I think um, the bassist Alex James was clearly on something because he wasn't quite in time with the band. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I didn't come away thinking they were that great. Oh, what a shame. Of course, Damon certainly has found greatness nowadays with his Gorillas project. Oh, I haven't been um, tracking that closely. And in fact, I'm not even sure if gorillas are still around, are they? They absolutely are. They've been around since 1998, and their new album, Song Machine Season 1, was released last year, and they're headlining Splendor in the Grass this year. So, Craig, with Blur on hiatus, what have the members been up to? Yeah, so um, so the, the guys from Blur have actually gone on to do some pretty interesting things. Um, so Damon Albarn's obviously doing his solo work, but um, the drummer from Blur, uh, which is Dave Roundtree, he's a criminal lawyer. He's an animator, he's a pilot, and he once wrote a device driver for Linux. A smart drummer, hey? I've never heard of such a thing. What about Alex James? Yeah, so the, the bassist has obviously uh, cleaned up his accents when I saw him in 95. Um, he's a, an award-winning cheesemaker. Alex James. Um, and the other thing that I just wanted to mention, and it's it's not strictly related to Blur, but it's um, it's from another band member of Gorillaz, Jamie Howlett. He has his own line of limited edition vibrators. Ah, that reminds me, folks. You can now pick up your very own Sounds Like Teen Spirit dildo from our online store. <laughs> Shall I put one aside for you for Christmas, Craig? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, my brain needs some more bubblegum some more trivia about Blur. Have you got anything else for us, Craig? Yeah, a couple of things. So when they were recording Park Life, the record label's owner basically just said, this is shit. This is a mistake. Um, it's never going to go anywhere. It's not going to do well at all. And then, of course, the album ended up topping the British charts and going four times platinum. So um, he was wrong. But, um, yeah, so one of the other things I just wanted to talk about was Song 2. So Song 2 is probably their most, one of their most famous songs. Otherwise known as the Woohoo song, right? Correct, the Woohoo song, heard in ads and, I don't know, in stadiums between football plays and so on. Um, but yeah, they, they basically wrote that as a bit of a parody of grunge culture. So, so Britpop basically came about as a, as a I don't know, an answer to, to grunge at the time, which was very popular, and they wanted to have something very unique. And so Song 2 was actually a parody of the, the grunge culture. But uh, it was sort of unironically accepted by the culture that it was parodying and um, became a pretty famous grunge song. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was almost cut from the album. So song two, so they, they created the album and they basically put in placeholders, so song one, song two, song three. Uh, song two was nearly cut, but um, they actually never changed the name. So it was just the name of the placeholder in the album. And I find it remarkable that out of all of Blur's material, song two is the most well-known. It's a favourite of radio DJs because it's two minutes and two seconds long. Um, you know, song two, two and two. Um, but yeah, D- DJs love it because they need to fill in slots before ads. And it's a two-minute song and it's perfect. Hailing from London, England, in the blue corner, going head-to-head with Oasis and Roll With It on the 14th of August, 1995. I give you Blur and Country House. Sete Dweller, successful fella Thought to himself, oops, I've got a lot of money Caught in a rat race, terminally Professional cynic, but my heart's not in it. I'm paying the price of living life at the limit. God, I'm in the centuries, anxiety. Yes, it preys on him. Lives in a house, very big house in the country. Watching afternoon repeats in the 
country He takes a minor of pills And piles up on all his bills In the country Oh, it's like an animal farm That's a rural charm In the country He's got morning glory And life's a different story Everything's going jack and jory In touch with his own mortality He's reading balls And knocking bad blows It's a helping hand That makes you feel wrong as you're blind Oh, it's a century's remedy For the things that haunt Sounds Like Teen Spirit, with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. So, Craig from Brain Bubblegum, it wouldn't be a 90s music show if we didn't discuss a strange band whose name is only made up of three letters. Yeah, KLF. That's a, they're a very interesting bunch of people. So, the KLF is basically a duo consisting of Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti. And they've had many different uh, iterations, you know, so they've, they've gone through different bands, they've started up bands, and, and then they became, you know, stadium house sort of music and um, made a lot of money with um, Justified and Ancient. And um, I think this, there was a song just called The KLF as well. Uh, so, yeah, they made a lot of money out of it. Yeah, they did make a lot of money, but I understand that they uh, burnt it. <laughs> they did. So... One of the things they're most famous for these days is burning one million pounds in cash. So, uh, yeah, they're both sort of, um, they'd call themselves artists. And um, so, yeah, this was a, a bit of an art stunt, if you like, and they had someone filming it. And what they did is went up to this Scottish island, really north in Scotland, in Jura, um, this island. And they found this farmhouse with a, a fireplace. And they basically had like 50,000 pound bundles of cash and just spent all night burning it. And I don't know if you've ever tried to burn cash. You probably haven't because you're not stupid. But cash doesn't burn easily. Uh, it's not made from paper. It's actually made from cotton. Um, and it's designed not to burn. So, yeah, they spent ages trying to burn this cash. And so you had all these 50-pound notes going through the chimney and all over the place. Um, but, yeah, they finally got, got through it all. Um, took them a while. And uh, it was filmed as a bit of an art film as well. And, uh, yeah, basically they were asked if you regretted it uh, a little bit later. And they said, yeah, of course I regret it. Who wouldn't? (laughs) 
but if, uh, apparently their their families really regret it as well because uh, it robbed them of you know that million pounds. Well, we'll play a track shortly, but before we really should discuss one of the KLF side projects. Well, we should. I'll, I'll give a bit of a segue because um because they wrote a book. So they basically wrote this book, I think quite ironically, and they called it The Manual, How to Have a Number One Hit the Easy Way, in response to basically what they thought was terrible pop music. And to test their theory, they formed a fictional band called The Time Lords. And they wrote a song called Doctor and the TARDIS, which got to number one. Doctor Who, Doctor Who. This is Sounds Like Teen Spirit with your host, Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio. Well, this has been Sounds Like Brain Bubblegum. I'm Charlie Fat, and I've had a great hour talking all things 90s music trivia with the trivia master himself from the Brain Bubblegum podcast, Craig Bly. Craig, where can we find your fine work? Where, where they can find my fine work? Um, I've got a different place, but you can find Brain Bubblegum. <laughs> you can find Brain Bubblegum on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, um, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, or you can go to uh, www.brainbubblegum.net. Um, that's where we have our web presence. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Insta. Let's take this show home with one last track from the Britpop era. This is Suede and Animal Nitrate. I'll catch you next time. Thanks again, Craig. Thanks, Charlie.
that was Sounds Like Teen Spirit with Charlie Fat, presented by Brushes on Slice Radio.